Great to see you uh, again. If you're new here, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of Tri-City Church, and uh, I have been away. We've been away on a couple weeks of family holidays, so it's always great to come back. Uh, I'm bursting with energy to preach. I haven't had a chance in the last, I mean, I did for my family, but it's not, it's not the same. Uh, they don't respond as well. So uh, I'm really glad uh, that you're here and that uh, I can be back. I'm thankful for uh, both Jake and Daniel who came to fill in the pulpit. Uh, really uh, just a blessing to have uh, friends and uh, church partnerships where we can have the pulpit filled by those who love the word. And, and I really hope you were blessed uh, if you were here the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, through the Psalms. We're doing that all summer long. And so if you have a Bible, now is a great time uh, to grab it. And we're going to be in Psalm 32. Uh, If you ever forget your Bible or don't have one, uh, there are always some kind of on the tables on your way in. Um, This Psalm is entitled, Blessed are the Forgiven. And so we're going to be talking uh, a lot about forgiveness and seeking forgiveness today. Uh, But I'd like to begin uh, by praying and then we'll we'll see what God has for us this morning. So please uh, join with me in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for this place and this time. Thank you, God, that as we come here, uh, we can come with the, with the assurance, Lord, that you do speak to your people. Lord, you've given us your word so that we can always know that you have a word for us each and every week, each and every day. I pray, God, that uh, we would have uh, open hearts. Uh, Lord, especially on the topic of forgiveness, Lord, help us to uh, see ourselves uh, clearly, see ourselves in our sin most clearly. And God, I pray that uh, through the preaching of your word, uh, Lord, the, the conviction of the Spirit of God would come upon us, uh, Lord, that we would indeed see the, the great joy of the offer of forgiveness, uh, Lord, that you, that you love us. And so I pray, Lord, as we enter into this time, God, that we would experience that, and Lord, that you would help me to be most uh, helpful. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, as I said, Psalm 32, you'll notice there is a title. Now, the titles of the Psalms are not actually... Uh, They're not in the text of Scripture. They're not in the original writings. They're usually kind of a summary of the psalm. So this one, Blessed Are the Forgiven, tells us that we're going to be talking about forgiveness. Uh, But you might also notice uh, that there is sort of a a descriptive phrase that often comes before each psalm. And this is part of the original writings. And in this case, it says, uh, A Maskil of David. So that, that word, masculine, is a weird word. Uh, there's probably a footnote in your Bible, and it will say something like, uh, probably a musical or liturgical term. And uh, most scholars think that this, this word has uh, connotations to it uh, that have to do with teaching or instruction. And so many people put Psalm 32 in the category of Psalms, which is a teaching psalm. Uh, this is an opportunity that David took to teach us something. And if we're wondering what it is, uh, there's a neat... Connection, probably the root of this psalm, is actually found in Psalm 51. If you know David's story, uh, King David, you know that he was a great king, but also uh, entered into grievous sin with Bathsheba, another, another man's wife. And David stole Bathsheba from Uriah and actually had Uriah killed. And at the point when David finally uh, sees the error of his ways and he confesses to God, he writes Psalm 51, which is all about his... Uh, his, his crisis of conscience, he realizes he sinned against God alone. And in the midst of all that repentance, we find this verse, uh, Psalm 51, verse 13, where he says this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So there's this desire that David has as he is experiencing the forgiveness of God that he would lead others to experience the same forgiveness. And many Many scholars think that then Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of that desire or promise, because that's, that's what it's all about. It's about the, 
the need that we have to experience the forgiveness of God, and the joy that comes from genuinely being forgiven. It's the grace that we experience from God. So that's going to be our topic, forgiveness. And uh, to put it succinctly, our big idea is this. God is eager to forgive our sins. God is eager that we would know the forgiveness of God. Uh, But the question that we're going to come to again and again is, uh, are we eager to confess our sins? God is eager to forgive them, but are we eager to confess them? So with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 32. We're going to see uh, the text for this morning and then, and then work our way through it. So it begins this way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, Clearly, the focus is on the forgiveness of God. And um, in it, we see, uh, I'm going to say these three things, uh, all to help us understand what David is saying, what God is saying about this forgiveness. Uh, Firstly, the grace of forgiveness. Secondly, the danger of unconfessed sin. And three, then, the joy of forgiveness. So we'll begin with number one, the grace of forgiveness. Uh, Verses one and two really do um, encapsulate everything we need to know about sin and about the forgiveness of God. Uh, It says there, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So to be blessed, uh, biblically speaking, is is just to be happy, to receive some benefit. And the source of this blessing is very clearly the forgiveness of God. So we need to understand uh, forgiveness. It's, It's not an unfamiliar word, but to really think about what it means uh, is between human beings and also between us and God that is the same thing. So to be forgiven means that there's an, an end to hostility between two parties. Someone has been wronged. Someone has, has maybe incurred a debt. There's a, there's a breakdown of the relationship. And yet the, the answer to that is a re- restoration of that relationship. You can forgive a financial debt, someone who's borrowed against you and you just... You just say, you're you're free to go. You don't owe me anything. You can forgive uh, a debt in the sense of someone wronging you. In every case, it has everything to do with a restoration of that relationship. And forgiveness feels good because it, it means that someone is showing you love and grace instead of the judgment and condemnation that you deserve. That feels fantastic. And a few years ago, I came across just, I think, a beautiful picture of this type of forgiveness, this act of forgiveness and it comes from uh, the White House, uh, of all places. Uh, this was during the, uh, the administration of George W. W. Bush. And uh, it's told by a man named Timothy Gokline, who was uh, his deputy director 
uh, of the Office of Public Liaison. I don't know what that is, but he's one of the president's top aides, and he was with the president for a number of years, uh, from 2001 to 2008, so about seven years that Timothy spent uh, in the White House. And in an interview, he describes uh, the, the pride that began to take hold of his heart as he was in the White House after seven years. He, be, he began to get enamored with the idea of always being the smartest guy in the room. And so he even went so far as, um, as to plagiarize uh, articles. He, he, would, he was writing articles sort of for his, his state paper, and he began to take other people's ideas and pass them off as his own. And eventually, uh, a reporter caught on to this, not, not surprisingly, and wrote him an email. He came in one day and found an email waiting in his inbox, which basically just said, hey, is, is this true? And immediately, he said he, he just felt his world crashing down around him. He, he realized more clearly what he had done, and he also realized that the life that he was leading, he, he couldn't continue. To bring this kind of scandal, not a huge scandal, but a, a scandal against the White House meant that he would, he would need to resign. And so he emailed the reporter back. He said, yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. I've done this. And then he resigned that day. That, that was on a Friday. He came back to the White House on the Monday to, to clean up his things. And, um, and he heard that the president, President Bush, wanted to see him. So I'm going to read his words, his account of how that went. He says, uh, so surely this, I thought, would be the woodshed moment I knew would come. And again, I completely deserved it. I expected other people to be there, but when I got to the Oval Office, the only other person there was the executive assistant. I thought I must have come on the wrong day when the president uh, called me in, though. And I thought, this is, this is going to be really bad. There's no one else there. I went in and I closed the door. And I turned to him to apologize, but barely got the words out before he looked me in the eyes and he said, Tim, I forgive you. Say I was stunned would be an understatement. I tried again to apologize, but he wouldn't let me. He said, Tim, I've known grace and mercy in my life. I'm extending it to you. You're forgiven. And I said, Mr. President, you should have thrown me into Pennsylvania Avenue. And again, he said, my friend, you're forgiven. We can talk about this or we can talk about the last eight years. And I turned to sit on the couch in the Oval Office, but he directed me to the seat of honor beneath the portrait of Washington, where heads of state sit. I sat there, and he and I had a conversation about two remarkable presidential campaigns and what was at that point seven and a half years in the White House. I was by then one of the longest-serving aides to the president. We embraced, and I thought this would be the last time that I would see George W. Bush. But as I was leaving, he said, I want you to bring, you and your, I want you to bring your wife and boys here so I can tell them what a great job you've done. I was stunned. I was speechless. The leader of the free world, the most powerful man on earth, wanted to affirm me before my wife and children in spite of what I've done. And sure enough, my wife and boys came. The president gave them a great amount of time in the Oval Office and gave them gifts. We were invited back a number of times to the White House. And I've seen him a number of times in Texas, and he never mentioned it again. It's a beautiful picture of what genuine forgiveness is. At an opportunity, a reason really, a just reason where the president and all of the the senior staff could have just turned their back on this guy, Timothy. Even though he'd been there for a while, he, he did something which, which brought difficulty, right? They had to deal with all the, the outworkings of this, all the explaining it away, and, and yet that's not how they reacted at all. They didn't shun him. They didn't turn him back on him. In fact, what we see here is that President Bush went above and beyond. He, he didn't just begrudgingly forgive him. He he wholeheartedly welcomed him back into the restoration of that relationship. 
even later on, he never mentioned it again. That's a picture of forgiveness. If you've experienced that forgiveness from someone in your life, you know the beauty and the, and the feeling that fills your heart when someone is genuinely no longer angry with you in spite of the hurt that you've caused them. See, that's the amazing thing about forgiveness is it goes against our self-serving, justice-loving logic and it shows grace instead of judgment and condemnation. And the truth is that while forgiveness between two people is a beautiful thing, the forgiveness of God is a magnification of this kind of love to an infinite degree because God has even more reason to turn his back on us for all that we've done. And yet he doesn't. Time and again, he turns to us with an outstretched hand of, of warmth and forgiveness and love. And we see all of this described in these first couple of verses because David he uses three words to describe sin and then three words to describe forgiveness. And in that, we get a very in-depth picture in terms of what we're talking about. So firstly, let's look at sin. He says first that a blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That word's transgression, it means treason or rebellion. Uh, one of the theologians I was reading says, the bottom of the blackness of your sin is your rebellion against God. That's what it comes down to fundamentally. You're saying, even though you're the creator of the world, even though you're rightfully my, my king, I'm turning my back on you and I'm not going your way at all. In fact, I'm going against you. I'm going my own way. In our rebellion, we are sinful. And that word transgression speaks to our broken relationship with God, that we are no longer close. We're far from him because of our choices, because of our actions. The second word is just a Hebrew word translated sin. It says there in verse one, a blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And that word uh, means to miss the mark. So the picture is, is of an archer, right, with the bow and, and missing the mark, right, not even hitting the target. Morally speaking, that's us in our sin, right? We have the statutes of God, which lay out what, what is holiness and right and, and perfect and good for us, and yet time and again, we miss the mark. It's speaking to our relationship with the law of God, that in our sin, we have, we have broken that relationship. We are not following the law of the Lord. So we have broken our relationship with God and with his law, and thirdly, there's a word there that is iniquity. It says the Lord counts no iniquity. This is a word which means to be crooked or corrupt. And really this speaks to the effects of sin. See, it's not just that as human beings we are, we are pretty good people that kind of sometimes make mistakes. Biblically speaking, what we see is that sin has infiltrated the very depths of our heart and that it continues to corrupt and twist us as we pursue sin. So David's intention here is to give sort of a full spectrum, even though it's brief, of, of what sin is. It's kind of like a painter who takes a certain hue, like, like a blue or purple, and then adds black to it, gets darker and darker and darker. You see all of the sort of the variations of that blackness. That's what we get in those three words. We see sin, which ruins our relationship with God, ruins our relationship to his law, brings us to the point of complete lostness, morally speaking. And the pity is, that there's, there's a way forward. There's, a, there's an open door to escape from all of this which is not hidden. And it comes with the forgiveness of God, an offer that has been publicly declared for millennia. And yet we don't always see it. So as David described sin, then he also goes on to describe forgiveness. The first word is a Hebrew word just translated forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And this word means to be unburdened. It's like a hiker unshouldering his, his heavy pack after a, a day's journey. In fact, there's a, a Christian allegory written by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress. 
And if you've ever seen it or seen an illustrated version of that, it begins with the main character. His name is Christian. He's just hunched over with this big pack on his back and his representation of our sin. And he's longing to be unburdened by it. And the characters in the story, they, they point him to the cross. And when he gets there, here's, here's what happens. It says, at the foot of the hill, he passed an open tomb. Then up again, upon a little knoll, he found himself beneath a wayside cross. And as its shadow fell across him, so suddenly the burden slipped from his shoulders, fell from off his back. It tumbled down the hill. It tumbled into the mouth of the tomb that he had passed. It was never seen again. And Christian kept, kept feeling behind his back. He couldn't believe it. For it was very surprising to him that simply the act of gazing at the cross had set him free and his burden of guilt was gone. Great dangers lay ahead of him, but for the moment he was light as air. And so he gave three leaps of joy and went on singing. It's obviously dramatized, but, but that is the feeling we get, isn't it? When we have experienced that forgiveness, we feel as if a weight has been lifted. I mean, we use that terminology inside and outside the church. When we talk about the weight of our conscience, kind of weighing us down, and oh, we've, we've been unburdened by guilt. It, it's a feeling that, that lifts us up. It's a beautiful thing, and the question that we might have, maybe we haven't asked this, but how exactly does it happen? How is it that we can go from being burdened by this, this sin that the Bible talks about and then free from it? Well, the next, the next couple of words, they make it clear. See, the mechanism of God's grace is forgiveness, and we see this because of the two words that David's, David uses. First, he says that sin is covered. And that word covered speaks to the atonement that comes through the cross. See, sin is a crime. And like every crime, there is a penalty to be paid. And in this case, the Bible makes it very clear that the penalty, the wages of sin is death. And not just momentary death, but death forever. But God has provided another way forward for us, for all of us who are in sin. And it's very clearly that it's Jesus. Jesus has taken on that death. He has sacrificed himself in our place so that instead of getting the penalty that is due for us, instead we walk away free. And in that sense, we are covered by the sacrificial blood of Jesus. That's what we remember at the taking of communion, that Jesus gave himself so that we could walk free. We are covered, we are atoned for. And the second word, it's actually a phrase, you see it in verse two, it says that the Lord counts no iniquity. That's a bookkeeping term. It means simply that the debt of sin is not charged to our account. So probably for many of us through the summer, right, we use our credit card when we're on vacation, right? We go away, we rack up, and we're waiting for that bill to come at the end of our vacation time. Well, you can imagine the joy that would happen if we were to open it up and it was all, it was zeros. There's no balance. We would say, I, I don't know how it happened. I'm not going to call them. It's, it's happened. It's great. <laughs> right? They'll f figure it out. You can just imagine, morally speaking, that, that the statement of our life, when we come to forgiveness in Christ, there is, there is no penalty due, there's no balance, there's no minimum payment. We are free in Christ because of what he's done. No guilt, no penance, and no worry about losing our right standing with God. The forgiveness of God is the primary source of grace in our lives. Everything else that God wants to do in our lives comes through that. And what we also see in this psalm, the fantastic thing is that, that God is eager to forgive. He's not reluctant. He does not forgive our debt begrudgingly like we often do, you know, where we, we give someone a forgiveness, but we, we harbor resentment. That's not at all what happens. In fact, we see here in, in verse five, uh, look at the dynamic here. This is David speaking about his own life. 
He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. Well, how did that happen? The next couplet there, he said, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So he has decided in his mind and his heart, I got to come clean. I got to be honest. I'm going to go to the Lord. But look, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He hadn't even said anything yet. He had just decided that I need to go and, and confess to the Lord. And already God was saying, you're forgiven. Already, just like, just like President Bush in the White House there. Timothy turns to him to confess. He says, you're already forgiven. That's the eagerness of God's love. The eagerness that God has to, con- to forgive us our sins. He loves us. He is not reluctant. He is not begrudging. He is abundant in his grace and his mercy. And the question for us, yes, God is is eager to forgive us our sins. But are we eager to confess them? For some of us, the idea of even needing the forgiveness of God seems foreign. Maybe Maybe it's new. Maybe it's something you're just thinking about or you're not even sure it's something that you really even need. But for others of us, it's something that we have experienced at one time in our life. And yet, if we're honest, we know that there are still areas, deep, dark areas of our heart and of our mind where where there is unconfessed sin. And this psalm makes it very clear that unconfessed sin is a very dangerous thing. So we've seen that the grace of the forgiveness of God, that we don't deserve it, and yet he showers it upon us. But point number two is, is there is danger in unconfessed sin. And it's actually there even in the first couple of verses. Look at the the end part of verse 2 where it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now that that means that the one who receives the blessing of God is, is not deceitful about his or her sin. To be deceitful about your sin means that you are dishonest about it. It means more than likely you're lying to yourself. You're certainly lying to the people in your life and you're definitely lying to God and saying that there's nothing I need to talk about. There's nothing I need to confess. It's fine. In all of this dishonesty, we allow sin to further cloud our minds and our hearts. We travel further and further into the darkness of sin, and we get more and more lost. And there's only two things, tends to be two things that will happen in this state where we have unconfessed sin. The first is that we have short-term peace, but long-term misery. The second is that we have short-term misery, but long-term peace. Here's what I mean by that. See, for many of us, even though there's sin present in our lives, we seek to find some sort of peace, right? We bury it in the bottom drawer of our life. Most of our nation, most of the people in our city are living their lives like this. If you talk to them, if they're not part of the church, if they, they haven't had a habit of even knowing God or confessing their sins to God, they will say, I don't really feel sinful, I don't feel any need to, to come and seek any sort of forgiveness from God, right? There's a, there's a sense that even though there's, there's sin that's present, according to the, the word of God, there's also peace. And because of that temporary peace, they have a sense that it will go on forever. I mean, David knew this, this kind of peace. David, who, who took Bathsheba, killed Uriah, he amazingly, after that, he found peace, We know this because he wasn't telling anyone about it. He was living his life, operating as king. And it wasn't until God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him that he he told anyone, that he confessed it all. In fact, as Nathan came and if you know the story, he told sort of an, an, an allegory, a complimentary story about a man, a rich 
sort of ruler who stole his neighbor's livestock, took advantage. And David, when he heard that story, said, that's outrageous. How could he do that? He never for a moment clued in that, oh, I'd done the very same thing, even worse. It wasn't until David said, no, you're that man, that then he, he broke down. See, it is possible to live a life of, of peace even though there is sin present. But, but the mistake is thinking that that short-term peace will go on forever. The mistake is thinking that just because you're at peace with your sin, that then you're at peace with God. In fact, the Bible says the very opposite. The, very, the Bible says just because your life is peaceful now doesn't mean it will be peaceful forever. In fact, it says that those who don't accept the forgiveness of God will not have peace in the future, that they will experience the just punishment for their sins in hell, that that is, that is the eventual end for all, even if you're enjoying immense amount of peace, even if you'd, you don't feel any conviction right now, according to the word of God, there is a unpeaceful, a miserable end. We don't often like to think about that. Hell is not a topic of conversation that we're, we're interested in having, especially on a, on a summer Sunday. I mean, we think, really, what danger could there be in me living my life, doing the best that I can? Sure, I make mistakes, but so do other people. How could this be a dangerous situation for me to be in? But see, the thing about warnings is that they are almost always given in situations where the danger is not apparent. I mean, the reason that we have those things in the ground saying, careful, gas line here, don't dig here, is because there's danger we can't tell. We need big signs on like electrical transformers telling us, hey, this is going to kill you because we might not realize it. We don't know. There are all sorts of warning signs there and they're most often for dangers that are not apparent. This is one of them. I came across a fantastic ancient warning system from Japan which I think is, makes sense, right? That's where they would have an ancient warning system for some reason, the Japanese people. Okay, so here's the warning system. Um, they are stones that are placed along the coastline. So see a picture? There's one there. They're called tsunami stones. And here is uh, the inscription on uh, one of the stones. It says this, Do not build any homes below this point. High dwellings are the peace and harmony of our descendants. Remember the calamity of the great tsunamis. So you can, you can see what has happened. Tsunamis are a great calamity, but one that happened every few decades. So the people who are living on the coast, they, they need to be reminded, hey, you shouldn't build your house down here. I know it's more beautiful. I know it's closer to the fishing boats. But what's going to happen eventually is there's going to be another earthquake and a giant wave will come and it'll wipe out the village. And so there's a stone, a warning to all the generations in the future saying, here's what we've learned. You need to, you need to heed this warning. Uh, there's one village, the village of Aniyoshi. Uh, here's the stone from it. It dates back to the 1930s. This village was hit with a tsunami in 1886, and they rebuilt the village on the coast, but then it was hit again in 1933. So they decided to move the whole village up to higher ground, and they put that stone in place so that everyone would know, don't build below this line. And they credit that stone with saving the village because in 1960, there was another uh, tsunami, another earthquake and tsunami, and if you remember, in 2001, there was a massive earthquake, massive tsunami, which caused $200 billion of damage on the island of Japan. It caused the nuclear reactor to, you know, collapse. And yet the village was saved because they had stayed up above the tsunami stone. 
And here's what one of the village leaders says about this stone and the forefathers that put it there. He said, they knew the horrors of the tsunamis. So they erected that stone to warn us. It's a rule from our ancestors, which no one in Aniyoshi dares break. See, there are warnings. There are rules that are put there in love. They're put there because you don't realize that you're in danger. You can imagine younger generations saying, look at all this land down by the water. Why are we building there? It's beautiful. Well, there, there might be tsunami. When? Never in my lifetime. I'm 20 years old, a whole two decades. I've never seen one. We have, this, we have this idea that just because there's peace right now, there will be peace forever. And yet we have warnings that are put there so that we can live our lives in a way that will actually bring peace, will actually have safety. And see, Psalm 32, it, it's just like that tsunami stone. It's, it's God himself, David, through David, saying, look, there are things that you need to know. We need to be warned of the dangers of taking sin lightly. We need to be warned of the dangers of allowing sin to infiltrate and corrupt our heart. You see this clearly in verse 6, where David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And those, those waters were probably a reference to the flood of Noah, which the people would have, would have remembered, where God brought judgment against sin. And what the psalm is saying is, look, now is the time. There's a time when God may be found. There's a time where he's, he's waiting to offer forgiveness. Now is that time. In the future, we don't know. We don't know when the next coming judgment will be, this time not with floodwaters, but with the coming of Christ, the return of Jesus, where he promises to deal with all evil, evil in the world, evil in our own hearts. See, God is eager to forgive our sins. He is patient right now, waiting for all of us, as many people as possible, to heed the warnings, to stop building our, our lives down below the, the marker of stone and instead to repent and to go where it's safe, into the arms of Christ. But see, the danger isn't just for those who have completely rejected God's ways. The danger is even for those of God's people who are in unrepentant sin, we see here that uh, he's speaking to God's people. And we know that we are tempted to ignore areas of sin in our life. Even for those of us who've come to a place of saying, no, I want to follow Jesus. Right? I received that, that momentary uh, time where we feel convicted. And that, I mean, the truth of the Bible is that we are cleansed from all sin in a moment. But, but to demonstrate the validity of that forgiveness, we need to continue pursuing repentance, pursuing forgiveness. And the challenge is that we often will make excuses for areas of sin that we just, we don't want to talk about. See, David knows very well that sin will always draw us away from the Lord. It will draw us further and further towards destruction. It usually happens slowly or gradually. There's a story I came across by a pastor, Jim Johnson. He writes about a Christian friend of his from college who was unfaithful to his wife. And so this pastor began to meet with them uh, individually and together. They were trying to restore the relationship. But in time, this man decided that he didn't want to restore the relationship. He didn't want to work on it anymore. And he turned his back on uh, his family, on his church. He, he dove headlong back into sexual sin. And so this, this pastor tried to connect with him a bunch of times, wanted to, you know, sort of plead the case and, and and wanted him to come back and see the error of his ways. And he says uh, he'll never forget the last phone call that he had with this man, where, where this friend of his from college said, Jim, 
I know I should feel bad about this, but I don't. He had so hardened his heart that he no longer felt any twinge of conscience. He had wanted peace so bad with his sin that he had got to the point where now he never didn't see the need for forgiveness. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a danger that comes through unconfessed sin, through pursuing our own desires, pursuing those sinful habits of mind or heart or actions and getting to the place where now we have found a temporary peace. Feels good, feels fine. Yet we're missing the fact that we are way below the marker of stone and that we're headed for, for misery for all eternity if we do not get right with God. But thankfully, that there is another way. Rather than short-term peace and long-term misery, long-term suffering because of our sin, there can be short-term misery and long-term peace. And here's what I mean. Doesn't it feel horrible when you feel bad about what you've done? I mean, look at David. He's describing the time when he was feeling convicted of his sin, verses three and four. He says this, for when I kept silent, so he hasn't spoken about his sin, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Do you know what that feels like? Where you're starting to feel, man, there's something, I know we need to deal with that. That doesn't, I know that I shouldn't do that. I need to have that conversation. And we just feel kind of this weight on our heart and it's, man, it, our insides are churning. It's miserable. It's miserable to be under the, the hand of God, the, the conviction of God. But we have to see that it's God's blessing. That it's God at work in our lives so that we will not be satisfied with temporary peace. Maybe you've experienced this. I know I have a number of times in my life where I've just begun to felt that there's, there's something that I know that I need to talk about. Especially there's been a few times for, between Don and I in our marriage where I've just realized, man, this, I need to come clean. I need to confess. And there's just been this churning in my spirit again and again. And yet I keep putting it off. Every time I think I'm going to have the conversation with her, I feel like I'm getting close to a cliff's edge and I get short of breath and I'm fearful. What's she going to say? What's going to happen? That's the misery that comes from being in sin and feeling the conviction of the spirit. But hear me, when when we resist that, when we take all of that and shove it back into the bottom drawer and think, I'm just going to, I'm just going to forget about it. We do not actually find peace. Maybe for a moment, like maybe that day, oh, I don't have to have the conversation. Great. But then what? God loves us. He will bring that back up into our heart again. We will be racked with guilt again. And for many, they say, well, then I don't want to have, I'm just done with God. I'm I'm done with the word of God. If that's how I feel, then I want to reject all of it. But we're, we're missing the warning. We're missing the blessing. As the spirit of God convicts us of our sin and we feel miserable, it's all to a good, to a greater joy and a greater peace. Because once we do confess our sin, we're unburdened. Do you know that feeling of having that conversation that you've been dreading having and then experiencing the forgiveness of someone that you've hurt? Of being on your knees before the Lord and finally experiencing just getting it it out and knowing that God is eager to forgive. Knowing that because of what Christ has done, it doesn't matter what you could say, that he does forgive you. It's that whole feeling of the experience of forgiveness that is the joy that David wants for everyone to know. In fact, in verse 7, he describes God as as a hiding place. You are my hiding place. 
right? A hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with the shouts of deliverance. It's an emotional experience as well as a, a spiritual one. And it tells us that, that there is danger in unconfessed sin, but when we come to the point of, of confession and repentance and we experience the forgiveness, there's great joy. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't consequences to our sin, but it means that we can know for absolute certainty that we are right with God. Look at our third point, where David kind of wraps it out, really speaking about the joy of, of forgiveness. This final exhortation is, is, I think, almost pleading in its tone. You notice there that God is beginning, he speaks in his own voice. In verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And what he's saying is there, I'm not just going to forgive your sin, but I'm actually watching over you. I'm leading you to the point of being forgiven. That's how much I love you. That's how involved I am in your life. And then verse 9, he hammers us again. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. It's a great word from God to all of you this morning. Be not like a horse or a mule, which must be curbed with bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. And by this point, you might be thinking, okay, I think he's laying it on a little bit thick. I mean, I, I get it. Yes, this, the point of the psalm is that we need to repent. I get it. The point of the sermon seems to be that we need to confess our sin. We, we've kind of heard it. We've heard it a lot, actually, by this point. I think it's like 37 minutes in. That's kind of what we've heard the whole time. We're kind of tired of it. Can't we just move on? Isn't that always how you feel when someone wants to talk to you about your sin? I get it. I get it. You're right. You might have a point. But look, have you forgotten all the good things I'm doing? Have you forgotten also about the bad things you're doing? Let's talk about that. Right? We want to, we want to minimize. We want to deflect. We, want, we just want to move on. But the question is, move on to what? Move on to a, to a meager bit of happiness? a short-term amount of peace in your life to a continued sense of, of moral lostness to this conviction that we keep, we keep putting aside? We, we can't move on to greater blessings from God if we are living with unrepentant and unconfessed sin because it's through the forgiveness of God that, that all of the blessings come because that's the restoration of our, of our relationship. When we are in unconfessed sin, we are missing out on all the blessings that God has for us. And so, so this, this psalm, David, he's, he's writing to the people. He's saying, I, I've lived that way. And it's not worth it. It's, it's not actually going to do what you hope it will do. Eventually, you will see the error of your ways, but it may be too late. See, God wants so much more for you than that. And I do as well. Look at the last couple of verses here. Verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. We're all wicked people. But there are those that persist in their wickedness. And down that road lies many, many sorrows. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy all the upright of heart. That's what David felt like when he finally came to that moment of forgiveness. That's what we do as well. That's what God wants for us is that we will experience that joy that, that even though the, the circumstances of life are difficult, even though there's fallout from our sin, we will have the joy of knowing that God is close with us, that he is working in our lives to bring greater and greater blessing, greater and greater joy. God is eager to forgive us our sins. Are you eager to confess them? 
And if not, why not? Is it fear? Is it a misunderstanding of who God is? Or is it the belief that the peace that you're feeling right now will continue in spite of the fact that there are warnings to the contrary? As we close, I want to read what I think is sort of a complimentary couple of verses from the New Testament. After the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, we see this in the book of 1 John. The Apostle John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise of the gospel, that when we simply speak of our sin, it is immediately forgiven, and it opens the doorway to every blessing that God has for us. And so my hope this morning is that for those of you who are here, and, and man, the whole idea of forgiveness from God, it's something totally new. My hope is that if you have questions about it, if you're feeling a conviction about it, man, we'd, we'd love to talk to you. Today is a day when you can experience that forgiveness. It requires simply the humility of heart to say, I, I see that I'm a sinner, that I, I know I need help. Lord, would you forgive me? I see what Christ has done for me. And for those of us who have experienced that and are living for the Lord, man, if there are areas of our life where we just, we know that we need to deal with, would God give us the strength to do that? the conviction that it will only bring greater blessing into our life in spite of the, the challenge, the, the fear of crossing that threshold, but that God's commitment to us is one of eager love and forgiveness. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I am so thankful for this word, Lord, in spite of its firmness, in spite of the fact, Lord, that it does feel as if, as if you are hammering us on the head again and again, Lord, I just trust that your word is, is true and good and a blessing. God, I pray for us as a people. I pray for us as Tri-City Church and any guests we have here. Lord, would you help us to heed your warning? Would you help us, God, to not believe the foolishness of, of building down our lives in an area that's, that's ripe for destruction? God, I pray instead that we would, we would see your grace and love and the instruction of your word as, as giving us directions which are designed only to bring good into our lives. Lord, help us to see clearly the areas of sin which need to be brought to light. And I pray, God, that if there are conversations that need to be had, Lord, that you would give us the courage to have those conversations. Lord, you would give us the faith to move forward towards you. And God, I pray especially that in knowing your forgiveness and knowing your grace, Lord, that you would, you would help us to be a forgiving people, a gracious people. Lord, I pray if there are conversations where people are coming to us and confessing sin, Lord, that we would remember your grace and Lord, that we would be a people within ourselves and within the community, Lord, that are exceedingly gracious, exceedingly kind, filled with love and forgiveness because that's how you've shown to us. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.